welcome to episode 13 of Storm the Norm, the fortnightly podcast where we pick up norms that come in the way of businesses succeeding in a disruptive world. I am Narayan. And I'm Anisha Motwani. Anisha, I know that most of the norms we storm are applicable across industries, across geography, and usually also across time. But I've noticed that many times, and, and this is coincidental since we pick our norms in advance of current happenings in the world, the norm we storm is very topical and very relevant to the here and now. And this week, I want to call this out, the week of June 29th, 2020, the Indian government just announced a ban on 59 Chinese apps. And it brings to bear a key factor, I think, in the norm we're going to discuss today. Specifically, today's norm is around how Indian brands seldom become global brands. And perhaps geopolitical factors like what Chinese brands are facing in India today play a role in it in the context of Indian brands in other markets too, don't you think? Well, at the risk of sounding immodest, I will echo what you say. We do seem to have a knack for picking timeless yet contemporary norms. But this particular one has been the one that I've wondered about for a very long time. Given India's talent, expertise, ease with tech, our cultural heritage, our rich resource base, why are there so few global Indian brands? Exactly. I mean, look at what is hiding in plain sight, if you will, right? I mean, Indian executives have always succeeded spectacularly on the global stage. Sundar Pichai, Satya Nadella, Ajay Banga, Indra Nui, Ajish Suri, Shantanu Narayan, Rakesh Kapoor. The list is long. And yet, we'd be hard put to name even five Indian businesses that have similarly succeeded on a global scale. And it makes me ask, why is that? You know, when you think about it, globalization and the global market economy perhaps laid down the best condition for Indian brands to find success beyond India. What has prevented Indian brands from winning on the global stage the way brands from other countries have succeeded, not just in India, but on a multinational stage and a global scale? You know, now that you mention it, it makes me think, why is it that even tech, I mean, Silicon Valley is filled with Indian talent and it's the darling of the startup world, even in India. Why is it that even tech has not been able to break through this global glass ceiling? I can see a couple of names, Oyo and Ola, for example, have attempted it, but they're far from succeeding either. The names that you just mentioned, Oyo trying to replicate what Airbnb started doing. Ola trying to follow the business model of Uber. Flipkart, you know, coming after Walmarts and Amazons of the world. So in many, many ways, a first to the market with the cutting edge idea is where I think we are still waiting in the tech world for India to make that breakthrough, whether it is India first and the world later. Which leads me to ask, or in fact, think that this norm is really ripe for storming right now. The shifting sands of global business sentiment have never been more in favor of India right now. And the world is looking for an alternative to China. Manufacturing is down in the US and other parts of the Western economy. And all the ingredients for a perfect storm by Indian brands to glow, go global are here. I guess the key question is, how can businesses storm this norm? And while we have the tough questions, I think we also have just the right person to answer them. And not just answer, but storm this norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a person who's been there, done that, in storming the norm, all right. But I have a feeling he's also going to ask difficult questions in turn. Please welcome Mr. Mohit Malhotra, CEO of our very own homegrown global Indian conglomerate, Dabur. Thank you so much once again, Mohit, for uh, joining us on the Storm the Norm podcast. We are really privileged to have you here today. Welcome, Mohit. Thank you for agreeing to join us in this interaction. Thanks, Nalan. I think thanks for having me. 
So, so in fact, you know what? I'll, I'll start with a, a somewhat obvious question, if you will, uh, and it's it's visible in plain sight, uh, and I think you are a prime example of that. And Indian executives have always succeeded spectacularly on the global stage, and and I think your journey, your trajectory, is a prime example of that. Uh, and the list is long and 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 illustrious. And yet, it feels like we'd be hard put to name even five Indian businesses that have similarly succeeded on a global scale. So, just wanted to open up by asking your thoughts on that. Why do you think that's happening, or do you even agree with that? Yeah. So, I think first of all, I don't uh, agree quite a bit on that. So, I think Indians have been holding forth across global behemoth organizations for quite some time, and it's because of their skill, the competence. Because of the sheer intellect and ability, and it's very really unfair to say that a homegrown companies haven't taken up to the challenge of going global. I think along with Dabur, um, I can surely name other FMCG companies also who have moved beyond shores of the country, either organically or inorganically through acquisitions. Couple of names which come to my mind besides Dabur is Godrej has done it, Wipro has done it, Godrej has done through acquisitions, Wipro has done it again through acquisitions. Himalaya has done it organically and beautifully. I think uh, one, although Himalaya is a competitor of mine, but I can't uh, not praise them for the kind of organic work the company has done to take the Indian system of medicine abroad and the spellbound work which is done and a lot of. So it'd be unfair for us to say that uh, Indian companies have not gone global, not to the extent that international companies, the way they have entrenched themselves in India, yeah, that could be a relatively a comparison. Wherein Indian companies have not had that scale overseas as the scale of Unilever, as Hindustan Lever in India, or for that matter, Rekits in India, for that matter, Kraft in India. Now let me jump on to Dabur. From a Dabur mm-hmm. standpoint, I think we started our international business very late as an organization because we are pretty satisfied. And that's the case with other companies also. India is a huge population, second largest population in the world and big captive consumption market here. So the real urge to move international wasn't there with Dabur for I think how many decades, decades have passed, only in past two decades, last 20 years, there was that urge to move international because we had reached uh, you know market share leadership level in most of the categories that we existed in India. So we were looking out for pillars of future growth for the company. So one pillar identified was international business. That's when we started doing categorization of opportunistic markets, potential markets and focus markets. And export was then converted into more of a uh, multi-country sort of a landscape in which we said, okay, Middle East is going to be our prime market because the largest business outside of India in exports was in the Middle East because that had the largest expat Indian population. Building all that very small, we had a 20 crore business. But the company took a very strategic approach to that. That's when in 2003, I moved out of India and I moved to Dubai. And there we set up a complete value chain for the organization. So like they say, we are Roman in Rome and only then you will be able to succeed. So Dabur shunned its own identity completely as an Indian organization once we moved there. And once we shun our own identity, we took on the identity of an Arab and we started thinking like an Arab. So from a trading operation, it became a demand-driven, marketing-driven, inside-driven business operation. That was a turning point. 
and i think that is when we stormed the norm when we decided to move international business and we 360 degree changed manufacturing became local products became local packaging became local positioning became local we started producing there we started uh, using free trade agreements so 360 degree we changed the dimension of the business that was the turning point and that 20 crore small trading business uh, is now around 2200 crore business 30% of our turnover comes from the international business uh, right. which actually leads me to the second question if there is no denying that these signs are there now and there is more protectionism in the in the air than globalization in that light then how does that affect a business's global ambitions especially an indian business yeah so to my mind i think globalization is a word which is completely eroding now i think can mm-hmm. there used to be a time when globalization used to be the way and the norm in the market but no more company in the brands i mean that it's like understanding the local landscape identifying consumer insights and developing products as per the local insights of the consumers because consumers are different everywhere so globalization doesn't work i'll give you an example when we went to the middle east we found brands looking at the global templates a png would have a template in uh, us which would cut copy pasted in the middle east uh, and uh, launched there which won't resonate with the consumers there unlike them we identified local insights we identified what are the local herbs we launched brands which befitted the local usage and attitude and practices so i'll give you some examples here vatika hair oil it was a value added enriched coconut oil in india and parachute was the only large player here and vatika launched a value added coconut oil in the country and very successfully so because consumers in india use coconut oil i went to arabia and uh, i said okay we'll follow globalization and have this indian coconut oil will it resonate uh, with the arabs but we did a consumer check and it doesn't resonate because coconut as a fruit doesn't grow in arabia they know coconut oil as something which is called juzale hind juzale hind means a fruit of india it is not a fruit of the arabs so what is the fruit of the arab it's olive is the fruit of the arab while the brand name will be global vatika but the oil will be which follows the usage habit chemistry of the local arab which is olive oil olive has its mention in the hadith and the quran and what coconut is to india is olive is to arab so we said now there's a vatika hair oil which has a base of olive and it's a olive enriched oil so we had the same additional ingredients in olive and we launched uh, vatika there and very successfully because consumer you know resonated with this pro- proposition and it was launched and was a resounding success and by the way vatika you know out of the total turnover of 2500 crore a third of the turnover comes from this brand vatika vatika is larger in international business than in india today so did the brand vatika have an equity when you went to dubai or you had to actually create an equity for vatika as well and therefore you know you had the choice of should it be vatika or could it be another brand that i create for that market brands have to be global cores so the core of the brand and the brand name remain the same it's a value added oil which promises nourishment for great hair 
So that doesn't disappear. The core of the brand remains the same. What changes is a coconut oil to olive oil to a ghee oil to a, some other oil. You know, like in Egypt, we have a different vatika. But the value-added proposition of a oil for the benefit of hair, long, strong, that remains the same. Mm. That doesn't change. We are a success because we completely, you know, shun away our Indian identity. We mm-hmm. did not live with our Indian identity. It is not because India is known to be a hair oiling sort of a landscape. That is what got cross-pollinated in Arabia and that's the secret of success. No, the secret of success is to shun your identity and to take on the identity of the place that you go in. I will give you an example of China. Now, China doesn't say that I'm a Chinese company when it goes overseas. Look at the electronic market in India. All mobile phones are Chinese, which are marketing to us here. Apple has not been able to gain so much of share as much as MI or other companies have been able to. Hmm. Because they follow the rules of the game in the country that they are in. Hmm. They don't follow the standard templates. And hmm. the problem with Indian companies are, they are not able to shun their identity. Hmm. They carry their identity. Classical case of Fab India. Hmm. Fab India wants to sell their ethnic attire, which the Indians resonate with. Hmm. The Westerners will never resonate with that kind of a sari or a, or a you know fully clad attire. But just just highlight a couple of challenges that could come your way. You know what what and if there is something that you experienced and how did you overcome it? So one of the challenges, like uh, the core of Dabur, is more. Healthcare, as you know, the window to perception of Dabur as a herbal Ayurvedic company, the leaders in Ayurveda and the world, is through Chavan Prash. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a magical remedy, and we've done a lot of clinical studies. When you move overseas market, there's a huge regulatory barrier mm-hmm. that you have to cross, and that is impossible to crack mm-hmm. as of now, because that endeavor has to be a ministry of uh, Ayush endeavor. It can't be a single company endeavor hmm. because you can't cross ministry of health barriers etc when you move overseas market so one challenge is a regulatory challenge huge hmm. challenge i hmm. think second challenge is an indian company moving abroad is the profit mindset hmm. that we have as against the investment mindset because we have a four-year five-year vision we wanted to invest there so a company that invests ahead of the curve in international markets will reap the fruits as you move on. So we are a cutting edge and a competitive edge over other companies like Americo was exporting goods from here to international markets. We set up a shop in international market. We set up a factory. When, when we set up a factory, you produce in international markets, you use the free trade agreements which are actually present there. Mm-hmm. So other companies would face a challenge of putting investments. That is the second challenge that uh, people face. The third big challenge which we had to fight with the board is the Indian ghetto mentality. When Indians move outside of their boundaries, they want to recruit Indians. They want to be with Indians because there is so much of comfort zone there with Indians because the dialect is so different with Arabs. If I'm taking a minute to make you explain a point, I will take maybe 10 minutes to explain other nationality a point because the English dialect is so different. My comprehension, understanding all becomes a challenge here. So that Indian ghetto mentality you have to get rid of. You have to shun it completely because we operate in 100 countries. We operate in the US also. And in the beginning, we wanted to plant Indian in the US. Now, it is a sure shot recipe for disaster because it's a culture. You can't fit the Indian and ask him 
that now you become an American in culture or you become an Arab in culture or you become an Egyptian in culture. That's a big fight culturally that you have to do with the board and have people, all that. So that's a challenge that you face. And uh, fourth one is advertising. Do you invest your invest upfront in dollars? You earn in rupees when you move from India to international and you invest in dollars. Mm. And uh, one dollar is 70 rupees. So do you want to invest in mass media? Most of the Indian corporates would not invest. Mm. They would want to do trading operations. So if you want to invest, you need to be very adventurous. You need to be risk-taking and it's a fearless approach rather than a fearful approach. That is a leadership a trade which is required. So one has to take a punt in the beginning for you to taste success. That's why most of the Indian companies actually shy away from uh, doing that. Oh, I, I, I love how Moet, you, you didn't pull any punches. Uh, I think <laughs> if, if you called many spades, nothing but spades. And I think uh, we needed to hear that. Well, thank you so much for taking this time. Well, thanks, thanks, uh, thank you, Isha. Well, thank, thank you for having me. I think it was a complete pleasure interacting with you guys. Yes. Anisha, in many ways, what Mohit reminded us was to go back to first principles, to focus on outcomes and not on tasks or processes, and to never forget that while products may need to be adapted and tweaked for markets, brands transcend obstacles, whether geographic or cultural, and they define a sharp purpose for themselves and stay true to it. Indeed, Narayan, and I agree with it every bit. But I'm going to be a bit of a troublemaker here. What do you think was the most provocative thing that Mohit said? I knew you weren't going to let me get off that easy. (laughs) Okay, I'll have to say for me, it has to be that he asked businesses to question why they are looking to become a global brand in the first place. Most brands, especially when they originate from small small markets, go global because they quickly attain market saturation. And take any European or even Japanese brands, they quickly run out of markets if they only cater to domestic consumption. But in a market the size and complexity of India, perhaps brands don't even need to look out in the first place. And that was quite thought-provoking for me. But it also goes back to the purpose question. Why does your brand exist in the first place? What's its purpose? Once you answer that, then figuring out the field of play, local or global, can come out quite naturally from there. But I want to ask you back the tough question. Or maybe it's not so tough. What's your take, Anisha? And not just on what Mohit said, but my favorite part of every episode. What STN hacks do you have for listeners this time around? And how can Indian businesses storm the norm to go global successfully? Well, this time around, I have the usual five STN hacks to offer, but I also have a bonus at the end. Nice. I'm all yours. I want to tell you how many times people confuse the concept of a brand with product, nomenclature, Mm -hmm. logo, advertising, marketing, just to name a few. Sometimes it seems that there's no understanding of the word, the process or the original intent behind the concept of brand. The underlying thing that I'm trying to point out is that this, the brand in inverted commerce, has been built upon some piece of information or usefulness, which is the functional value, grounded in some consistency, purpose, values, attitude. That's how we know, simplistically put, how brands are built. Easily interchangeable words between brands, products, advertising, marketing. That creates the biggest confusion about what do you want to take global. You are an expert and and probably comes naturally to you, but let me ask you like a more basic question. How does one decode a brand to understand purpose? How do you decide what stays and what goes? I think the brand typically has four constituents. Okay. Two of them are intangible and two of them are tangible. Okay. Okay. Let me begin with the first two. 
which is the intangible one. The intangible mm-hmm. ones are the core purpose. Why do I exist? What is my purpose to exist in this world? Mm-hmm. If today I were to stop existing, who will it make a difference to? Okay. Now that's the purpose. Mm-hmm. Aligned to that purpose is the values of the brand. Mm-hmm. If you have defined your purpose in a certain way, you need to espouse certain values that will bring that purpose alive. So for example, let's take the example of Starbucks. The way the Starbucks purpose reads to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup and one neighborhood at a time. How do they bring this purpose alive? By giving relaxed, enjoyable and a responsible experience. Yeah, nothing in the way that they defined it says this is only meant for the West or the East or this country or that culture. It's it's so global. It's so because universal. Because it's true to its purpose. Yeah. Yes, it's so universal. Yeah, okay. okay. Now what, what needs to stay constant are the intangibles, which hmm. is the core purpose and the values of the brand. Sure. What can be discretionary or adaptable are the tangibles, which is the identity or the voice. Now, identity also, many companies actually prefer to carry the legacy and the equity of the identity from one market to another. If you have the same tangible product offering that you are taking to another country, it is better to take the same identity. So say, for example, McDonald's, it's, they have taken the same physical you know, entity across markets. So they want yeah. to carry the same identity. But in yeah. the case of Vatika, say, for example, what they did was they kept the core intact, yeah. but they changed the product and the offering. Now, if yeah. they change the product and the offering, and if the identity needs to change to, to symbolify that offering, then you can adapt. So if here is an example of a different product with the same core values that needed a different identity. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you, it sounds like a fundamental tenet, but I think it's a, it's a hack because most businesses tend to ignore the importance of this. And therefore, I think all of the examples really help. What's number two? Voice of the brand needs to clearly take into account how culture affects consumer behavior. Culture affects how people shop. You have to understand this truth very, very clearly. This hmm. will help you decide whether the existing product is all your communication is relevant for the market or not. Mm. Like Mohit explained, Vatika is a completely different product in Middle East, but what is constant is the core purpose of value-added oil and its value system. However, Starbucks is exactly the opposite. It's a service brand that puts a lot of emphasis on recreating similar experiences across each country that they go to. But they make sure that recreating the brand experience ties in strongly with the specific country's culture and practices. Okay, stay true to purpose, reflect culture. What's next? Now it comes to the last constituent of the brand, which is the voice and the expression. Hmm. There again, culture plays a role, but you have to make sure you go deep, unearth some powerful human truths that are rooted in local culture and use them and create customizable campaigns. Whether you're exploring viral marketing, influencer campaigns, or building your presence on social media, the vital thing to remember with a global branding strategy is that you're working in a whole new world. Developing mm. your business in a new country means adapting to a different set of rules, regulations, and even languages. Mm. Add to that the fact that we are living in an era of customization, where customers expect this more than ever from brands. And it's easy to see where brands can struggle. So Mm. customization coming from deep human truths that emanate from a cultural understanding of that local market 
is what is very very crucial in creating the right voice for the brand so culture uh, sorry let me restart the purpose culture voice expression customization okay yeah sometimes when you don't understand the culture or the local nuances well a clever thing a communication or a brand or a product could mean something else in one language and may translate into something very different in a different language and yeah. i'll give you an example wix introduced its cuff drops into the german market without realizing that the german pronunciation of v is f making wix slang for a sexual intercourse mm. colgate launched a toothpaste in france named q without realizing that is also the name of a french pornographic magazine and here's my last bonus hack most global brand managers who fail have little authority and they have you know the mandate to create a strategy without the ability to manage it mm-hmm. at the same time there are several examples you know where markets and strategic planning processes and culture are highly market focused with local empowerment i go back to one of our earliest episodes with with rajiv chaba the md of mg motors in india and i think he echoed this when he said you know unless you empower local leaders to interpret global brand purposes you're more likely to fail than not yes okay so that's a lot to wrap my head around but let's see if i can quickly summarize the hacks the first one was clarify whether you're building a global brand or trying to take a product global critical difference the second uh, and especially if the former make sure your brand promise is sharp it adaptive So to paraphrase an old adage culture can eat badly managed brands for breakfast so get culture right three uh, get the voice and expression right but especially in terms of consistency so to paraphrase the old real estate formula consistency 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 and for uh, for all that we live in a global world we have to make sure that brand assets don't get lost or mangled or tarnished in translation and five connected to all the previous ones but even more relevant in a post digital world have the resources to create customizable campaigns across geographies and a bonus empower local teams globally as always you've captured the essence very succinctly naran all right then i think that's a good place to wrap up episode 13 of storm the norm you know what there are now multiple places you can catch us on on apple podcasts and soundcloud like always but you can also catch us on geo saven and all three by just searching for storm the norm also bonus on we're on saregama carvan 2.0 devices on channel 453 with that this is narayan and anisha signing off for now we'll be back with a new episode shortly thank you and talk to you soon